Well, it is really great to be here. Um, your pastor has been a great blessing to me over the past few months. He's been coming over to our house, and we've just been fellowshipping together. It's really unique, by the way. What's happening this morning and the fellowship, it doesn't happen very often. I'd like for you guys to kind of just recognize that. This morning, we're going to look at a passage in Romans chapter 15. You can take your time to get there because I'm going to take my time to get there as well. But we're going to look at a passage in Romans 15 that tells us how we do worship together. So when we gather together, and even when we're not together, how do we do that? How do we worship together? Before we dig into our Bible passage, why don't we pray together? Father, today we come together to worship You. Our holy Lord God Almighty. Lord, we stand in awe of the very fact that You have given us Your Word and You have communicated to us who You are and who we are and how we ought to live for Your glory. Today as we sang these songs about lifting up Your name, glorifying You, Lord, our hearts lifted up in praise to You. And Lord, today we praise You as we look into Your precious Word. Lord, I pray that You would be with my grandmother today. Lord, calm her nerves. I know with her dementia, it's going to be difficult to even remember why she is there and waiting. And I pray, Lord, that You would strengthen her, uphold her. Lord, I pray that my mother would be able to be a, an encouragement to her. The Lord, that You would keep her strong. And that, Lord, You would work in those circumstances. Lord, today, as I preach Your Word, I pray that Your Word would go forward to Your people. And Lord, it would change each of our hearts as we look at how we as a church body are called to worship together with one another, bear one another up, encourage one another, I pray, Lord, that You would work deeply in our hearts and we would leave this place committed to glorify You in our worship together. It is in Jesus' name we pray, and in Him we alone trust. Amen. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 15. And as you guys know, books and verses don't just come out of nowhere. There's a context and a picture of that. And the book of Romans is a beautiful doctrinal book. In chapter 1, Paul mentions that he had wanted to visit the Roman church for quite some time, but had not been able to do so. And so, since he's not able to visit them, he writes them this letter, probably from Corinth, near the end of his third missionary journey. The church in Rome had existed really for quite some time. It was probably founded by some of the believers that were saved during Peter's preaching at Pentecost. And the church began to be made up as it grew. It was made up of a, a number of Jews and Gentile followers of Jesus. And Paul had learned a great deal about this Roman church from his companions in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila. These were two Jews who had been kicked out of Rome by a decree of Emperor Claudius. In fact, this kicking Jews out of Rome happened a number of times. We have historically about three different times that it happened. So think about kind of the slinky effect that this church got. There were Jews in the church, and then there were not Jews in the church. There were Jews in the church, and there were not Jews in the church. And when Claudius kicked them out. The, the time that the Jews were gone was about five years, and then they were allowed back into Rome. 
And when the Jews came back into this Roman church, they found that the church had just naturally become very non-Jewish in its custom and practice. And this formed a cultural rift between the Gentiles and the Jewish believers there in Rome. And by the time Paul wrote this letter, the church had become very divided over doctrinal issues and many issues of practice. They disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They debated on whether or not non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or be circumcised or, or abstain from certain kinds of food. And so Paul writes this letter of Romans to accomplish a couple of things. The first of those is he desired for this divided church to be unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here in Romans, we have the largest definition or the largest exposition of the gospel in our Bibles. But also this unification was for a practical purpose. He desired that the Roman church become a church planting center. After the passage that we're going to look at this morning in Romans chapter 15, Paul says, my desire is that you would be unified, that you would be solid in this doctrine so that I can come and stage a missionary journey to go even further west to Spain to be able to plant other churches. And that is God's intention for the church. Our churches are to be replicating other churches. And so that's a bit of the context that this uh, passage that we're looking at here looks at. God in His sovereignty provided this masterpiece of gospel doctrine to unify the church upon the gospel uh, through Paul's inability to visit Rome so that this church could become a self-replicating, gospel-driven, Christ-centered church. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God available to everyone who comes to Christ through faith. And Paul states this in the first chapter. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 say words that we're very familiar with. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The book of Romans can be divided into four parts reflecting what the gospel does. Chapters 1 through 4 tell us that the gospel unifies us by revealing God's righteousness and our need for a Savior who justifies us by faith. That word justification is really important for us to understand to be able to get the book of Romans. It means that we are given a new status, a status that is now right with God and forgiven. It means that we are given a new family in God. We are included in the people of God. And it also means that we are given a new future. We are being transformed, and one day when we see Christ, we will be fully transformed in His glory. And that is what this 
the, the unity of the church surrounds this message of justification. We have been unified in Christ so that we are now given a new status right with God, a new family, one with one another, and a new future that all of us are bound on together. Chapters 5 through 8 tell us that the gospel unifies us by creating a new humanity through the work of Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law. That was a long sentence that means a lot. When you summarize a a bunch of chapters, that's what happens. But it helps us remember that we are all sinful at our very core. From Adam, all of us received this sinful nature. But in Christ, a new Adam, we are given a new inheritance. Jesus, the new Adam, suffered death in our place so that all who trust in Him are given a new love. We're given a new life. We're given a new person to obey Jesus Christ. A new person to be able to follow. And if today you don't know this Jesus, He calls to you. He calls to you, trust in Me. He tells you in His grace, you're a sinner. And you need Jesus. And He beckons to you and He calls to you. But then we have a... a, conundrum that I think at at times we won't understand is often the Gentile church. What about the Israelites? God has made all of these promises. And so in chapters 9 through 11, Paul addresses them and he says that the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel and unifies all of his children in Jesus Christ. The Gentiles, that would be, I think, all of us have been grafted into God's covenant family to create one big multi-ethnic family of all people who follow Jesus. But in Romans 11, Paul says, but God's not done with Israel. One day, Jesus will be acknowledged by all of His people. And at this point in the book, Paul stops and just says, wow. And I'll tell you how he says, wow, because it's a little more articulate than that. He says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And every time I read that passage, I feel like I need to say, okay, we're done. That's about it. But do you recognize Paul has spent 11 chapters expounding the gospel? And he stops and steps back and just says, by the way, I gave you everything I know. And it touches just the surface. And now you know just enough to say, wow, this is amazing. And when we come into the fellowship that God has brought together, that ought to be our attitude. We come together serving a great and mighty, a holy, awesome, powerful God who through His Son has unified His church in a mystery that, yes, we understand, but no, we don't understand. That is our great God. And that God has tied together His church. And that's what chapters 12 through 16 he explains. And this is the application part of his book. Paul often structures his books with doctrine and then application. How does this apply? And and it's no different here with Romans. Just a little bit longer doctrine. 
The application section of the book of Romans gives us our response to God's unifying work in the gospel. How do we respond to this awe that all of us have in God's work of justification? In unifying His people, in making us one. How do we respond? We respond by being unified with one another and unified with Christ. We worship God by giving ourselves as a living sacrifice to God so that others may see that God's plan is good and perfect. And we do that together. These passages, chapters 12 through 16, are intensely corporate. What I mean by that is it's not written just to you or just to me. Here's how you structure your life. It's different. It's written to the church. And in it, Paul expounds about the gifts that God has given his church in grace and in his grace and mercy about how he has gifted every single one of you. By the way, if you're in the church, you have been given gifts. And he's given every single one of you these gifts not so that you can use them to say, look at who I am, but so that you can use them to paint back to who our God is and how great He is and so that the whole church is edified to glorify God. And so Paul has laid this doctrinal foundation for the churches, unity in Christ. Now he gives specific instruction to this Roman church that is divided now against Gentile and Jewish lines. In Romans chapter 15, we see Paul lay out four necessary steps for the body of Christ, the church, to make Christ non-ignorable through their relationships with one another. And before we dive into that, let's pray together. That was my introduction. Sorry, I know it was long. But as we get into this, let's pray together. Lord, we are amazed at who You are and what You've done for us. And like Paul, we step back and just say, wow. Lord, today as we revel in the wow of what You have done, would we also recognize our privilege and responsibility to one another as we worship You together. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're in Romans chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Then Paul stops and prays again. He does this a lot. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we're going to begin by looking at these four steps. The first one I want you to see is to help one another. So if you're taking notes, that's my first point. Help one another. And in chapter, in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to help one another. So as we help one another, we help one another with our strength. Help one another with your strength. 
So we see here, you who are strong. Right? What does that mean? Is that talking about big muscles? What is it talking about here when he says strong? In the context, these are people who are firm in their faith. Paul uses this term in Corinthians to show us how his weakness was really strength in Christ. And I want you to understand this. There are many of us who say, man, I don't feel strong. What God has placed in front of us is far bigger than what I could accomplish. And let me tell you something. That is the first step to real strength. Paul says this, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. All the things that we could say, hey, I could do without that. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, the first step to understanding our strength in Christ is to recognize that I'm not strong on my own. And when Paul talks to these who are strong, if that's you, it doesn't mean that you feel strong and ready. There are times in which I'm ready to quit. I am sure that it's your pastor gets that way at times, and he is strong. There are times, and and because I'm standing in another man's pulpit, I always want to do this. There are times when your pastor needs your encouragement. He is strong, but he needs you often to come alongside him and to love on him. And God has strengthened you in such a way that you may come alongside him. And here he says, you who are strong have an obligation. This term, however, in Romans is not altogether positive. In the previous chapter, Paul referred to the weak, and he talks about the Roman church. There was a dispute about religious foods and days. And he says, For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats here is referring to the one who is strong in faith. And as the passage continues to develop, we see he says in verse uh, in chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but what you eat by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So let me simplify this. Paul says the foods and days in themselves weren't unclean. But they became unclean when someone offended their conscience to eat or to celebrate them. Those who were strong in faith knew there wasn't something significant to this day or that day. But they were wrong in Rome to say, well, I don't believe that's wrong or that's wrong. And so I'm just going to do it anyways, especially when they hurt their brothers. See, the responsibility of the strong is not to use the freedom that we have been given in Christ to consume it on ourselves, to make ourselves look better or to make ourselves feel better. Our world very much speaks that. We have to take care of ourselves before we could take care of someone else. We have to make sure that we are all filled up. You have to take care of yourself first, but God's gospel is different. He says, think of others first. Those who are strong are given their strength not to be able to use for themselves, but to be able to give to others. There was division in the church between the strong and the weak. Think about that. Those who were strong were running over those who are weak. This is a sad position. If they are 
if the strong are interested or the weak are interested only in maintaining their own position, the rift in this Jewish and Gentile church would continue to separate and continue to get worse. And Paul doesn't say, hey, you weak people, just get over it. He says, those of you who are strong, that's kind of the way I would tend towards things, just get over it. Let's kind of move forward. But that's not how God calls us to do this. He says, you who are strong, you have an obligation. This word obligation is very strong. In the Greek, it is the very first word in the sentence, which means it's very, very important. It emphasizes their duty to do this. Jesus talks about our, uh, the duty of a, of a uh, servant. The servant goes out and he labors all day in the fields. And when he comes in, he does not expect his master to say to him, Hey, good job. Sit down with me and let's eat food together. That's not what he expects. He expects to come in and then serve his master. Why? Because it's his duty. It's what his job is. Jesus used this word at the Last Supper when he talks to his disciples. And he says to them, you ought, that's the same word translated duty, you ought to wash one another's feet. John continues to use this throughout his epistle as he calls us to follow Christ. You ought to walk in the same way that I walked. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We ought to love one another. Paul used this word in chapter 13, and he says to them, Oh, that word, oh, in chapter 13, verse 8, is that word duty. Owe no one anything except. So what we do owe one another is to love one another, for one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The obligation of the strong is part of their following Christ. So as you recognize in your life that you have strong places... Remember, this is in the context of Paul telling us gifts. And we're not all strong in the same places, and that's why God put us together to be His church. But when you recognize that you're strong, you go to someone who is not strong in that area, and you have an obligation to lift them up. Paul is reminding the strong that they owe the weak their love and their care. Paul is emphasizing that the strong don't have a choice The strong are obligated to support the weak and not to please themselves. I want us to stop for just a minute and recognize that the duty of the strong doesn't indicate that this is a job without joy. This is a job that is full of joy. Look at verses 6 and 7. We see the glory of Christ emanating from His body. That's exciting. Paul uses this word not to say, just get your nose to the grindstone and do it. He says, look, this is how the body functions. This isn't optional. Those of you who are strong, God has placed you in His church for a distinct purpose. So we are, first of all, called to help one another with our strength, but also to help one another with our support. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, in this context, with our English mindset, we think of bear, like you bear with a crying baby. You know, it's, it's, you're going to tolerate it, you're going to work on it, but that's not what this word here means. It's more the idea of a wall that is a bearing wall. Do you know what happens to a house when you knock out a bearing wall? house falls down. It's not a good thing. This is talking about the strength God has given you is for a purpose of bearing up one another's, supporting others. 
The word means literally to pick up and to carry the weak. The attitude of the strong person is not critical or condescending of the weak. Man, I just wish that person would get their act together. Why can't they figure this out? What is wrong with them? That's kind of our tendency is this is such a simple concept. Come on. But here the object is to say, look, I know you're struggling to come alongside, to bear them up. It's like a child who falls in the cul-de-sac or falls on the street. My tendency is often to just yell across the cul de get, get up! Rub it off! But this is talking about that mother who walks out, picks up their child with a skinned knee, puts them on the counter, takes care of their knee, bears them up. In a place where life was more than they could handle, falling in the cul-de-sac, falling in the street, this person comes alongside and bears them. And that's that nurturing that we as the church are called to have with one another, to bear one another's up. And in fact, we are called to bear one another up even when it is to the detriment of our own interests, when it costs us something. Do you remember Jesus? Paul says this about Jesus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on his own interests, but also the interests of others. And that is exactly what our Savior did for us. He didn't look at his own interests. His own interest would have been to stay in heaven. But He became a man. He humbled Himself so that He could bear us up. So that He could battle with the greatest scourge that has ever been known to man. He could battle sin, death, and hell. A battle that you and I have lost and there is no winning apart from Christ. And He battled that for you and I. He continually humbled Himself. And when we follow Jesus we recognize we follow a Savior who bore us in His arms, who hides us under His wings, who is our refuge. And when we follow Him, we follow Him as a support. This is our call for the strong in faith to refrain from using our religious liberties in ways that needlessly offend the conscience of others. This doesn't mean we compromise the Gospel. Absolutely not. I mean, Paul spent... 11 chapters confirming the gospel. It means that out of the gospel flows this support of one another and this bearing of one another. Paul was talking about relinquishing personal liberties for the purpose of drawing men to Christ. Bear with the failings of the weak. And just to be really clear, and do not please yourself. He says, and please and not to please ourselves. Our focus as we support one another ought to be, as we bear with one another, ought to be others. To look on others. Many of the strong in Rome were using their liberties for their own comfort and convenience. In this, they were hurting weaker believers. This was fostering that disunity that was growing between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. And Paul says, focus on others. He calls us to sacrifice. The freedom that we have been given is Christ in Christ is not for the individual to capitalize on and say, look at everything I can do now. But instead, for us to take this freedom and to lavish it upon others. To take our freedom to deny ourselves. To take our freedom to die to self. To die daily. And to do that to give to others. Fathers, this is your duty to your wife daily. To die. 
And when you come home and the house isn't exactly like you'd expected or dinner is not quite made or the things that you expected or wanted or the kids are running all over, it's your chance to say, I die to myself. You who are strong, fathers, if you're in that position, husbands, if you're in that position, that's your job. You who are strong, bear with the weaknesses of your family and focus on them. I know after a long day of work, there's nothing more you want to do than take off your shoes and sit in the recliner and veg. But your job, your duty is to bear up your family. That's just one illustration about how the whole church... There are times when you come to church on Sunday morning or when you meet with the body and you're like, didn't really want to be here today. Don't let people know that first. But second of all, that's the time and when you lean into this, I'm going to bear with you. Go to someone, ask them how they're doing. How was your walk with Christ this last week? What did you read in your Bible? Do you realize that they may just give you something you needed? And that reminder that you are walking together in Christ is an encouragement with one another. So the first point that we've looked at is to help one another. The next is to please one another. I promise the others will go a little bit quicker. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. So Paul changes his tense here a little. At the first verse, he is talking about the duty of the strong. But here he now pulls back and says, for each of us. This includes the leaders. So Paul is saying, I'm in this. It includes the strong. So Paul says, those people who I talked about last verse, they're in this. But it also includes the weak. Let each of us, every single one, please his neighbor for his good. Now, Paul is not saying that we all ought to be people pleasers. I'll do whatever it takes so that people like me. No, Paul says to please them for a purpose, for their good, to benefit them. We are called to please one another, to benefit them, to promote their good. This word good is a general term for their well-being. And when we look to help someone with their general well-being, we have to be humble. Because there are some things that I think, hey, this might be good for you that, frankly, isn't Bible or isn't necessarily good for you. And so we have to step back and say, what does the Word say? And how do we do what is good for this person in the Word. We must apply this with care and with humility. The end goal here is to bring the weak to a place of becoming strong and mature. You see, the weak in the church should not control the church by setting forward a scruple and everyone running to adhere to that. In fact, the strong are called to walk alongside them, not to just bow down to every desire or preference that they have, but instead to walk alongside them to bring them to maturity, to point them to the person of Jesus Christ who frees us. This isn't just an action that we put on. That's kind of what I want. I want, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then I'll do it. But it's something that flows out of our heart. As we cultivate a love for Jesus, we will also cultivate a love for the people that he loves. And as we know our Jesus, we will know and love his people. And our objective will be the same as Jesus's, which is to build them up. That's what God is doing with his church. He's building us up till we reach the mature manhood of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? By speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up into every way into him who is Christ. A genuine concern for the weak will eventually lead them out of immature beliefs so that they become strong. Think of your children who are afraid of the dark. 
We can give them all the reasons on why they ought not be afraid of the dark, but in reality, they probably just need a hug and to say, the monsters won't get you, I'll fight away the monsters, don't worry about it, I'll take care of you. But as our children grow up and they begin to know you and they begin to know the realities of this world, that fear, for most of us, it begins to fade. But the reality is that's what God wants to do in the body, that we build one another up. The idea here is to build one another, to edify one another so that we may follow Christ. Look at verse 3. Here we have Paul tell us an example of how Christ lived. If you want to know how you ought to live, look at how Christ lived and walk in that path, he's saying. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. The pattern here that we are called to follow in the church is the pattern that Christ set. Who? Though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped after. He already had it. But instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and becoming found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient even to the point of death. Even to the point of death on the cross. When we follow Christ... We build one another up. We follow in His way. Paul here quotes from the psalmist, For the zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. People insulted Christ because of His association with the Father. And He gladly bore these insults and even death for our sins because we stood in that crowd who insulted Him. And today, we stand as followers of Jesus Christ as those who stand in His stead. And we ought to recognize that following Christ is going to cost us something. And in fact, it may cost us everything. Will you die? I don't mean literally right now, even though that may be the case. Will you die daily for the cause of His church? We are called to do all of this, and God has given us specific instructions. Instructions from His Word. Look at verse 4. For what was written in former days was written for our instruction. So here he says, what's the basis of this helping one another, of this pleasing one another? How, how do we know what to do and what not to do? How to help and how not to help? And the answer is to be saturated with the Word. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Now, for us as we read this, it applies to our entire New Testament, our entire Bible, every single book in there. But you realize that when the Roman church got this, it was looking at the Old Testament, at the Old Testament here. And Paul had spoken to the Corinthians and told them the examples of the Old Testament. He says, these things took place for us that we might not desire evil as the Israelites did. These things that happened to them happened as an example that they may be written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages is to come. The Word of God, the Bible that you are either scrolling through on your phone or open in your lap, it is the basis for our worship and fellowship with one another. There is no other basis for it. There are all sorts of ideas on, hey, we could do this or we could do this, but we follow the Scripture and so when someone calls you up and says, hey, I'm really struggling with this part of my life, give them Scripture. Don't just give them advice and say, hey, here's, here's what you, you know, when I had that, I did this. Get to that place, but give them Scripture. Give them the Word of God. 
Because it is our basis for fellowshipping with one another. You say, but I don't, I don't have the Word of God readily available like that. Well, read it. Get in the Word. We are called to be readers. I know that there's a lot of people who say, well, I don't like to read. Well, we don't get the option when we look at the Bible. We read it. And there are so many options today on how to read the Scripture. You can get it on your phone and it'll read it to you. I like to read the Bible and have it read with me at the same time because I'm a pastor and I start studying when I read. And so I read it and I'm like, ooh, what is that Greek word? And so I start looking there and I don't get anywhere. So as long as someone's pacing me, I do a little bit better. I don't know where you are. But get into the Word of God. It will teach you how to love your Savior, but it will also grow in you a love for His people. Let me tell you something. Following Jesus sometimes gets hard. I don't want to tell you it's always easy. In fact, Paul mentions that here. He says that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, when your walk with Jesus is hard, do you know what you need? The Word. And when you say, I'm just too discouraged to get into it, you need to go to another believer who is strong and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you give me the Word and walk together? That's why God has put us here together. His purpose is to drive us to His Scripture, to drive us to the person of Jesus Christ. And we endure. This word endurance means patience or perseverance. This is both commanded to us, and then in the next verse, it's provided for us. Isn't that beautiful? God doesn't command us something that He does not also provide for us. You know what? If it were up to me to endure, I'd have given up long ago. But my Jesus, He walks with me, and He endured where I could not, and He strengthens and encourages that's the next piece that Paul looks at. So endure through the Scripture. Endure through encouragement. We ought, every single one of us, to be relentless encouragers. I am often reminded of this with my children. You know, we have those seasons when our kids just don't do anything right. It's like their goal is to figure out what does dad or mom want me to do? I'll do the opposite. And we find ourselves as parents often saying... Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And when that begins to happen, it's time for you to remember to encourage them. Now, I'm not saying don't rebuke them. I'm not saying allow those things to go. But it's time for you to encourage them in the Scripture. And it's the same way with us as the church. When you look at a person and that person just grates on you and irritates you, and don't lie, you know someone probably in this room has done that at some point in time. Do you know what time it is for you? It's time for you to encourage them. Time for you to step back and say, how has God gifted them? How can I thank them for that? It's time for you to walk up next to that person and give them a hug and say, hey, I love you in Jesus. I know that might be a little awkward, but the reality is that's what we are called to do to encourage one another. We ought to, every one of us, be relentless encouragers coming alongside and saying, hey, Jesus is for you. I'm for you. Let's walk together. But why do we do this? We do this towards hope. You know, if it just were, hey, endure, hey, encourage, to what? Encourage towards hope. Encouragement of the Scriptures that we might have hope. The end of endurance and encouragement is hope in Jesus. Hope can be defined as future faith. We have hope in our salvation. 
Psalm 42 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation. For God alone, my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. Hope in the Word. Remember your Word to your servant in which you gave me hope. Hope in the forgiveness of sin. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in His Word. I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman of the morning. More than the watchman of the morning. Hope in Jesus. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. And men and women... This is how we motivate one another. And that's what Paul does here. He stops. He stops preaching to them and he says, let me pray for you. Motivate one another. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. We are called to depend on Christ together. You're not alone in this. God has given you the endurance, encouragement, the Scripture. You don't have to manufacture your own ideas. God's given it to you. Hope in what He has given you and do that together. We need to spend time in prayer together. I know both of our churches has times when we get together and we pray together. And that's when we fellowship with Christ and with one another. And we recognize our inability, His ability. We praise Him. We glorify Him. We say, I can't do this, Lord, but you can. We pray together and we depend together, but we also pursue peace together. That you, he prays that you would live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus. Think about Paul's pastor's heart for just a moment. Paul is hearing about this church. He's hearing about how they're struggling, how they don't have harmony with one another, and his heart is broken for them. And so he is continually beseeching the Lord, Lord, give them harmony, give them peace, unite them together in Jesus Christ, peace with one another, peace with God. Why? Verse 6, and I love this verse. We got to do this this morning as we lifted our voices with one another. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Motivate one another to worship together. How do you do that when we sing? Well, sing loud. You say, but I don't have a great voice. Who cares? In heaven you will. And we're practicing now for heaven, right? And so we get to sing. I, Jose, one of the men in our church, he would readily say he doesn't have a great voice. But he and I went to Shepherd's Conference this year and we sang together. And I sang with him because there was no other option. He sang to the glory of God. And you know what? It wasn't always great. But I will tell you this, God is glorified when His children reach up their voices to worship Him. But you recognize worship isn't only done when we sing. Worship is done through every area of our lives. When you get up, when you roll out of bed, when you put your feet on the floor, when you realize I slept wrong, when you brush your teeth, we worship in all of our lives, every little piece of it. And when we connect with one another, when your family gets up and you sit down around the table, you're worshiping something. 
We worship one another. May the voice of our lives, of our church's lives, lift up as one voice to glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Well, it's, it's pretty eclectic. It's pretty exciting. But he gives us in verse 7 how we do that. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What did you do to earn your salvation? Nothing. What do you do to maintain your salvation? And yet Jesus stood with open arms. He called you to Himself. He gave you everything you need. And that is how we stand and worship God as a body. We stand with open arms and we say, Come, let me encourage you. Come, let me edify you. Come, let me build you up. We bring people into our homes. We bring them into our lives. Sometimes at great cost to ourselves, we love one another. Why? Because that's how Jesus loved us. With open arms, He called us to Himself. If today you don't know this Jesus, He calls to you with open arms. He calls to you, come to Me. You say, but I I don't know that I can. Well, that's a good first step. Because He does it for you. If today you say, I don't know Jesus, but I want to, I encourage you afterwards, talk to me. Talk to one of the leaders. Talk to Nate. We would love to show you from a Bible how you can know this Jesus who reaches out to you. Believers, this is how we stand in relationship to one another. But this is also how we stand in relationship to our neighbors. When our neighbor walks out, we stand with open arms. Just go over and give him a big old giant hug. I, I wouldn't move into that quite yet. But you know what? They should know that you love them. When you see your neighbor, they should know that that person loves me. Why? Because that's how we as a church together worship God. Let us close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word that enables us to do all that You have called us to do. Lord, today we all stand in big shoes as we are called to welcome others as Jesus welcomed us. But we also recognize that that is why You died on the cross for us. So that we may give others the grace and mercy and love of our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that these churches would walk in such a way in relationship to one another and in relationship to others that Jesus would be made non-ignorable that He would receive all of the glory and majesty and worship and praise. And it is to that Jesus we pray and hope. Amen.